0: Welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm April and I'm Rachel. Do you want to say anything about last week's episode or hearing from anyone about last week's episode?
1: Yeah, I, I love the feedback we've gotten. Thank you, guys, everybody, for um, your feedback on Ebo Gain. We've been told that it was a very touching story, and and I couldn't agree more. It
0: was. Adrian was uh, amazing to let us in on on what happened to him. Yeah. And this week, we're continuing our series on psychedelics with an interview with Jag Davies. He's with the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a group who's been fighting for many years uh, for legalization and decriminalization of drugs in the U.S. And in fact, their group was really instrumental in getting the bill in california passed last year to legalize marijuana as a recreational drug oh that's great
1: well so, done yeah well done everyone <laughs> yeah
0: so maybe we should just go ahead and listen to the interview with jag and i apologize there are a couple spots where skype distorted the audio a little bit but i think you'll still get it only happened a couple times so let's take a listen <laughs>
2: My name is Jag Davies. I'm the Communications Strategy Director at the Drug Policy Alliance. And the Drug Policy Alliance, or DPA as we're known, is the nation's leading organization working to end the war on drugs and to shift drug policy from a criminal-based approach to more of a health-based approach. So that generally means three things. Uh, one, it means uh, creating safe access to legal marijuana, because about half of all drug arrests are simply for marijuana. So taking that out of the equation is a, puts a huge dent in the overall drug war. The second part of it is ending the criminalization of drug use more broadly and doing things to reduce the criminal justice consequences of, of being involved in the drug trade. Um, so we do a lot of work on sentencing reform. We also do work around trying to end criminalization of drug use more broadly. And the third part of it, which I sort of already alluded to, is actually implementing health-based approaches to drug policy that help fix a lot of the problems associated with problematic drug use in our society.
0: Do you know anything about ancient cultures and who the first people were believed to have used psychedelics and what they would have used it for?
2: That's a really good question. I actually studied anthropology uh, 15 or so years ago when I was uh, in uh, academia and looked at that question quite a bit at cross-cultural perspectives on altered states of consciousness and yeah i don't think there's any a definitive answer of like who who was the first uh, to try a psychedelic um, but the the striking thing is that almost every society around the history of the world had some form of psychedelics integrated into their society and not as a sort of taboo or oppositional kind of thing but as something that was sort of integrated into the social order of the society. I mean, whether you go from India to Mexico, where uh, psilocybin mushroom grows, to North America, where there's peyote. In Europe, there was a a long history of the Amanita muscaria mushrooms being used, or Ibogaine in Africa. You know, I I could go on. What I found was really interesting in studying that was that I guess I was kind of looking for, um, in studying it, this sort of like hope. Maybe I was younger, more idealistic then. I was looking for this sort of hope that psychedelics could somehow help our culture transcend itself and that having some sort of like rite of passage with psychedelics integrated into our culture and our society would help change it for the better and help our, our consciousness evolve. And I think most people who are enthusiastic about psychedelics um, sort of harbor this idea, you know, that, that psychedelics are sort of an inherently good thing in a lot of ways. And it would, the world would probably be a better place if more people use psychedelics. And I'm kind of a contrarian on a lot of this stuff, but I actually think it's it's not necessarily true. The way in which a drug is integrated into a society has everything to do with sort of how the culture's expectation of it. So for example, in uh, medieval Europe, the Vikings would take psychedelic Amanita muscaria mushrooms before going to battle, pillaging villages and killing people and raping people. And it helps sort of like, them in a state of mind where they had this warlike mentality yeah my anthropology professor in college asked me what what would you think if like the military started using uh lsd as part of the initiation in boot camp would that be a good thing or would that just make them more effective killers or you know I was like hmm yeah you kind of have a point there so i think humans have this tendency and everywhere and this cuts to like sort of the drug war more generally, that we have this tendency to assume that drugs have these very inherent characteristics associated with them and these inherent values associated with them. And every culture, um, especially ours, has sort of created this dualistic idea of like, there's good drugs and there's bad drugs, or this drug is only okay in this very specific circumstance. Um, And it's remarkable looking from like culture to culture How consistent that is, but also how fluid the categories are that the whether a drug is criminalized and and marginalized or whether it's accepted into the the hierarchy and social order of the society is very it, it has everything to do with sort of the history and cultural experience of the drug. Um, and not anything about the drug. I mean, like, go back in history. I mean, at one point, caffeine was heavily criminalized when it was first introduced to Europe, it was associated with like revolution, you know, a lot of places, of course, have been alcohol, the temperance movement in the US was basically the original version of the drug war. People who are enthusiastic about psychedelics can also sort of fall into this trap a lot of the time of thinking, oh, well, this is this isn't a drug, really. It's this other thing um, or, you know, oh, it's not like those other bad drugs um, and sort of throwing people who use other substances that have also been demonized by the drug war under the bus. This is something that's come up a lot with marijuana, because a lot of the reform and su- support for reform around marijuana is based on this sort of what we call uh, marijuana exceptionalism. This idea that people have that, oh, you know, marijuana should just be grouped with like alcohol, it's, it's safe, and therefore it should be legal. Um, where I think in the long run, in terms of changing society's perceptions about drugs, that's actually kind of unhelpful. Showing that marijuana is so safe, it does sort of show the absurdity of the drug war. But I would also say that drugs should be decriminalized and even legal made legally available precisely because they can be harmful and that that's the best way of addressing their potential harms. <laughs> you know, uh, That way you can regulate the quality control of them so people aren't taking poison by accident or overdosing by accident and people can get help if they need it through the conventional medical system as opposed to ending up in the criminal justice system first which greatly, once you end up with a drug arrest, I mean, you have a criminal record that is going to follow you around for the rest of your life. Every time you go to get a job, every time you go to apply for school, anytime you apply for an apartment, the drug war is, uh, it's a continuation of the form of uh, racial control that we've had in this country for centuries Um, there's a new book called, uh, not a new book, sorry, a book that came out a few years ago, you might be familiar with called the new Jim Crow that really explains this idea very well, how the drug war in the late 1960s and, uh, and late 20th century was, you know, a response to the gains of the civil rights era. And it was a way of perpetuating the social stratification of Jim Crow uh, under uh, so-called quote unquote race neutral or colorblind guys
0: yeah I haven't read that book but I did see the um, the documentary 13th which talks goes into depth about that as well
2: that's a fantastic documentary highly highly recommended it's even for someone like me who's been working on this stuff for ages it still is like really mind-blowing
0: yeah I find that Everyone should see that documentary. It's completely eye-opening. But I'll look for that book, too. It sounds really interesting. So can we go back to the beginning of the 20th century and talk about when psychedelics were first appearing in U.S. culture? I mean, Native American culture had been using peyote and and psychedelic mushrooms. Was there a time that the government got involved with with their use of, of psychedelics and cut it off, made it illegal for them? Or did did it all sort of happen around the same time? And then I'm interested to know when psychedelics were kind of first developed in the U.S. or known about in the U.S.
2: The use of psychedelics was suppressed, uh, you know, all over the world uh, by the Western colonial powers. I don't think there was I, I, it, like, for example, with peyote in North America, I don't think there was an explicit law on the books just because there weren't any drug laws then. <laughs> um, that framework, uh, didn't, didn't even, even exist. But I, I know, yeah, particularly in Central America and in South America with ayahuasca, that the use of psychedelics was considered a part of the the culture that was was, uh, heavily suppressed and erased and, and wiped out in a lot of ways to the point that, yeah, many, many people in Western society were not familiar with psychedelics by the earliest 20th century. You had a small number of people maybe in the late 1800s, early 1900s that had tried mescaline and things like that, um but psychedelics didn't really come into the popular consciousness in the US until the 1950s and that was after the discovery of LSD in the early 40s and psychedelics had a very different image back then they were consi- they were being investigated for all sorts of things but they were most well known as a sort of promising tool in psychiatry and psychology. Tens of thousands of people were uh, given psychedelics and studies in the 1950s, and it was considered one of the most promising avenues for psychology and psychiatry. Um, And the, the results back then were really astounding, finding that people with a whole, all different sorts of ranges of conditions everything from alcoholism to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder to um autism it, you know i had remarkable benefits from from using psychedelics as as an adjunct to to conventional therapy and that was how a lot of the they, they sort of got out into the counterculture some of those people like ken kesey and alan Ginsberg. From the Beat Generation actually participated in studies at Stanford where they were given psychedelics and then brought that knowledge back to, to their communities. Um, and by the mid-1960s, uh, psychedelics started to become associated with the counterculture and with social upheaval that was happening at that time. And it was in 1972 that President Nixon declared the first official drug war. And there's a quote from him from one of his aides uh, that's very explicit where he says, you know, you know, we knew that we couldn't make it illegal to be black or an anti-war protester. But, you know, if we criminalize the drugs that they're using, then we, we can totally take them down. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did.
0: Okay, we just wanted to stop really quick. So that quote that Jag's talking about was made by John Ehrlichman. That was Nixon's former chief domestic advisor. And he admitted it in a decades-old interview with a journalist named Dan Baum, who wrote a book about him at the time but didn't use this quote. And then last year, he wrote an article for Harper's Magazine. And so the actual quote is this. You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did.
2: So they they saw it as a very sort of explicit tool at that time. Um, and so from the 1970s, basically for the next 30 years or so, research into the medicinal benefits of psychedelics was just about completely shut down both because it was very cumbersome to do the research, but also just, the, you know, the stig- it's, uh, doing anything in academia is hard, but just the stigma of the drug war, you know, makes it very hard to get institutional support for things like that. I was lucky enough when I was actually an undergraduate at a small school called New College of Florida around the year 2000. There's an organization called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is uh, one of the main groups that is doing psychedelic research and really kickstarting this whole rena- this whole renaissance, and the founder of the organization, Rick Doblin, had gone to New College and came back and taught a course there, and so I started working at MAPS. And it was really at that point in the early 2000s when research started getting approved and taking off more. And, you know, basically the goal of of groups like MAPS is to put psychedelics, to sort of basically finish what had started to happen in the 50s and put psychedelics through FDA clinical trials uh, like you would any other medicine or therapeutic agent um, to get them approved federally as prescription medicines. And, you know, but not as the kind of thing where, you know, you would just take it home and use it yourself what they're trying to get approved is a a specific protocol where you use psychedelics as an adjunct to long-term psychotherapy. So you go into like 20 psychotherapy visits or whatever uh, over six months or so. And during a couple of those sessions, you spend the whole day there and you take either MDMA or psilocybin or LSD, depending on on which study it is, and the, the results have been so successful and they're scare, scaling up research now, it's conceivable within five or 10 years that this could be approved uh, through the FDA for medical use, uh, which is pretty remarkable to find a way to sort of navigate the system like that. Uh, but there's still, uh, as, as someone who works now on drug policy more broadly, um, you know, I'm really encouraged by uh, the success of the research and uh, the possibility that psychedelics could become available for medical use. But I'm also wary in some ways of, you know, who is necessarily left out of this reform. Um, Because if if psychedelics are approved through the medical system, first of all, that'll mean that, you know, that it'll still be very prohibitive for most people. Most people can't afford long-term psychotherapy or their health insurance doesn't cover it or whatever. And that doesn't actually change. You know, once once something is approved as a prescription medicine in the US, that actually doesn't really affect the criminal laws around it. I mean, a lot of prescription medicaid, like prescription opioids, are quite heavily criminalized now where you, you can get a very harsh mandatory minimum for having, you know, just a few prescription pills or whatever, and a lot of people don't know cocaine and methamphetamine are actually both in schedule two because they have uh, approved prescription uses so I, what uh, we're trying to do at the Drug Policy Alliance is to uh, support the the medical research and help break down the, ba- the political barriers to scientific research, but also at the same time, implement a complementary approach that reduces the role of criminalization in psychedelic drug policy as well, so that people are less likely to get arrested for them and so that people aren't sentenced to, you know, decades in prison just for uh, producing or selling a small amount of them.
0: Can you talk about MDMA? And it seems like that became popular for a bit. And then they squashed that down. Like they didn't realize it was a psychedelic, I guess, when it started or something. Uh, MDMA
2: was originally synthesized in 1912 by the German pharmaceutical company Merck, but the pioneering chemist and psychonaut, uh, Sasha Shulgin, Who wrote some very excellent books discovered its effects in the 1970s um, and passed it along to some of his friends who were underground psychedelic therapists and in the late 70s and early 80s it became used in uh, in, a popular uh, among psychedelic therapists but it was never legally regulated in any way And then, yeah, in the early to mid 80s, it started getting out into the nightclub scene and there started being news stories. And in 1985, the DEA officially prohibited it. And that's actually how MAPS was founded. Rick Doblin initially started MAPS to fight the DEA's prohibition of MDMA. The battle still hasn't ended, (laughs) as we can tell. There's no example throughout history of drug with an established demand getting prohi- where prohibition works, you know? <laughs> I mean, really, the most, and the most dangerous thing about MDMA that we're seeing now is that, you know, is all of the adulterants in it, that the, there's all these new psychoactive substances that keep getting invented to go around the bans, and oftentimes people don't know what they're taking, which is why there, there's an organization we work with a lot called DanceSafe, they uh, fund their efforts through selling drug checking kits. So if you go to their website for, I think, you know, $30 or whatever, you can buy a little tester so that you can test MDMA to tell, which is, it's not completely conclusive. Uh, it doesn't tell you everything in it, but it'll at least tell you if it has MDMA or other, a few other common adulterants in it.
0: Do you know anything about Ibogaine?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting substance. It comes from Ghana, in Africa, as traditionally used in, in rites of passage, there. It's a very powerful psychedelic. Uh, it, has, it lasts about 24 to 48 hours, so it's not used recreationally very much. But in the 1960s, uh, some people discovered that after taking it, it uh, greatly uh, reduced or eliminated uh, the symptoms of opiate withdrawal. And you know, all, all psychedelics have a history of being used uh, as a treatment uh, for substance use issues, uh, but ibogaine in particular, because it has this physiological effect of uh, reducing withdrawal symptoms. Uh, is, is, has become quite well known. The, Ibogaine is illegal in the U.S., but it's uh, not illegal in most other countries. So there's a lot of clinics in Mexico and other countries where people from the U.S. Uh, can go to do treatment with Ibogaine, um, most commonly to treat addiction, but sometimes for, for other reasons as well. Um, and the important thing with Ibogaine is to make sure that you're working with, um, you know, a very competent clinic because there, there's physiological issues that can be associated with it. Um, and it's a very powerful substance, you know, with with psychedelic treatment, you know, the, uh, most important part of determining whether the therapy is successful is the follow-up care, actually, you know, not just doing the psychedelic and like having this experience, but in doing therapy afterwards and having a long-term care plan to be able to integrate the experience and, and into your life, you know? Um, So, so yeah, that, that's an important thing. And with, you know, there's been so much more attention and this has been a big issue for us at DPA Uh, With opioids in the U.S., uh, there's now, uh, you know, opioid overdoses have, like, quadrupled over the past 20 years, and it's been a huge problem. Um, And so a lot of our focus has been on overdose prevention and, uh, you know, creating access to treatment, both to more, you know, conventional drug treatment, but also unconventional treatments uh, like ibogaine or other substances that can be useful in in treating addiction.
0: Do you think that that will ever be that that ibogaine will ever be legal in the U.S.? What do you think the chances are of other psychedelics being legal in the U.S. to work, you know, as therapies?
2: Ibogaine probably will not be the first psychedelic to get medically approved. Uh, the two MDMA and psilocybin are the ones that researchers are really narrowing in on to get approved through the FDA. Um, but I think what's more likely, uh, with Ibogaine is that, um, you know, it, like with other psychedelic drugs is that, um, you know, it, it can become decriminalized in the U S so at least people aren't, uh, you know, are under threat of arrest and criminalization for using it. Um, And I think that there's also, um, you know, I think opportunities at the state level with Ibogaine and other psychedelics. For example, over the past years, a few state legislators have uh, tried introducing bills to create access to Ibogaine in Vermont and New York and Maryland and a few other states um, to create some sort of access similar uh, to medical marijuana. Uh, for Ibogaine. Obviously, it would be much more limited than with medical marijuana, where it would have to be super uh, in you know, a medically supervised setting um, and have a lot of uh, careful restrictions put in place. Uh, but it's also possible that, um, as with marijuana, that there could be progress at the state level.
0: So how do research organizations like MAPS, how are you legally able to use psychedelics for research?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. It's just a very convoluted and long process. (laughs) You know, you have to get approval from an institutional review board, which is something, you know, you, you have to do for any study, you know, through the university where the study is being done or whatever. Then you have to get approval from the FDA the Food and Drug Administration, and then you have to go get approval from the Drug Enforcement Administration to obtain a DEA license to possess the drug for research purposes. So it basically just means that it takes years of effort and tons of money to do it, that it's a very different system than for you know any other pharmaceutical drug. You know, I mean, psychedelics and marijuana in some ways have the same problem that, like, of, like herbal supplements have in a lot of ways. And that the way our pharmaceutical system is set up is that there's no way to make money off of something if it's just, like, a generic plant. So the only way a pharmaceutical company is going to spend millions of dollars to put a drug through FDA clinical trials and get it approved as a prescription medicine is if it can patent it. You know, so it, it just it shows how, like, absurd our system is in terms of, like, what we call a medicine. Like, in some ways, when the DEA says, you know, psychedelics are not an approved medicine, like, they're technically right because the definition of what we call an FDA approved medicine is so, so limited. <laughs> you know, it, it's basically drugs that have gone through this very, very specific Set of clinical trials, and the way Maps is getting around this is basically by doing it through a nonprofit model. Since so no for-profit pharmaceutical company is gonna get psychedelics approved as a prescription medicine, because they then it would be they wouldn't be able to make any money off of it. Maps is doing it through donations, when, you know, and because there's you know so many people out there who are you know very passionate about psychedelics. Um, it's feasible but that that you know for other substances that's that aren't as well known that's not as possible but I think that shows the need for us to have like ideally if we were just going to like start all over and create a whole new system you know we would have a whole different system for like categorizing drugs you know we don't have in our society we either have like FDA approved medicines or we have completely unregulated illegal drugs or we have like this weird category of like alcohol and tobacco where they're just like, you know, these weird random exceptions, you know, (laughs) that like fall outside any other system. And in some ways what we're doing, what's happening with marijuana is that it's just sort of getting placed in that arbitrary category with alcohol and tobacco, which of course is a huge improvement, but ideally we would start it over and just like, there would be some system for, like, if there's a recreational drug that's relatively safe that, you know, you could put it through clinical trials and get it approved for use, you know, depending on the, the you know, safety profile of the drug. And not every drug would be regulated in the same way, obviously. You'd have different regulations. But, yeah, it's like it's not that complicated, actually. We, all, we already have uh, a lot of Systems for drug regulation that we've developed throughout history. Like we know we have lots of evidence showing us what works something I like to point out a lot is sort of like to look at People tend to think of like drug policy in terms of being like a spectrum, you know Or or being sort of these opposite poles of like, you know, prohibition on the one end and um you know legal drug or sorry and and, you know legal drugs on the other but it's actually like a very broad spectrum of like hundreds of different possible permutations around it and you know complete prohibition uh with no form of regulation you know is at the very extreme end of it you know and then you know the other extreme end of it you'd have something pretty close to like you know, what you had with like tobacco in the 1950s and 60s, you know, where you have like complete free market, you know, model, which both entail a complete lack, abdication of regulation. You know, um, but we do have lots of ways of regulating drugs that we've developed and lots of evidence to show what, what works. There's a, a, another book um, and thinker I would highly, highly recommend is uh, Dr. Carl Hart. He's on DPA's board. He's a neuroscientist at Columbia. He's actually the first black-tenured scientist at Columbia, which is kind of mind-boggling, consider it's 2017. Uh, He wrote a book called High Price. He has a TED Talk online that's great. And he he talks about this so, so well, about how people's assumptions uh, about drugs are based on myths. And he's very open about it. He's like, I'm a college professor. I'm a successful neuroscientist and I use I, I, I use heroin once in a while and has is really trying to sort of debunk uh, the myths that people have about it. But I think still, you know, the we have a long way to go there, you know, so I think when it comes to debunking the sort of myths around drugs and sort of, digging out the roots of the drug war we still have a long way to go and it's so much so rooted in race and class and stuff like that it's so rooted in like uh people's assumptions about other people you know other groups of people we we talk sometimes about like should we do a big coming out campaign around psychedelics or drugs more generally you know because that was so successful with the gay rights movement. But it's, it's trickier for us in some ways because not everyone can do that. There's huge risks associated with it. Um, if you have kids, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you have a job. <laughs> so that makes it even more important, I think, for people who are in a, a self, safe and privileged situation where they, they don't fit the stereotype of a drug user or a psychedelics user to, to speak out about it.
0: I do like that idea though, of a coming out that would, I mean, I think that would go a long, long way. I mean, in the sixties, I learned recently that, you know, people that I wouldn't have expected came out and talked about their LSD use, like Cary Grant and some other people that just didn't, didn't seem like, you know, hippies, but they, and I think Frank Sinatra used it. What is the general public's temperature about you, the use of psychedelics and making psychedelics decriminalized?
2: With decriminalization in general, um, it's quite high. I mean, it's around fifty or sixty percent. With legalization, it's down, I mean, the interest it, it, with legalization, it's it's nominal. It's it's you know below twenty percent. The interesting thing is that despite all of the attention in the media recently on the medical uses and therapeutic uses of psychedelics. Um, In the polling that's out there, you know, people generally, people in the general public, people don't separate it from other illegal drugs very much. Um, So when you look at polls, looking at legalizing drugs more broadly, I mean, marijuana is kind of in a class of its own. Marijuana, you have 50, 60 percent support. Um, But Uh, With MDMA and psychedelics, I mean, it's down there, uh, you know, under 20, uh, you know, whether it's methamphetamine or heroin or cocaine um, or MDMA or LSD, it's uh, under 20% when it comes to to legalizing them. Um, So, which is, you know, obviously part of the reason we're not, we're a political advocacy organization. So we're not focusing, you know, we're not trying to do that right now. I think what we can do though is to, Work to change the public's perception around psychedelics, uh, through education and harm reduction programs, um, and also work to, you know, at least reduce the role of, uh, criminalization in psychedelic drug policy so that people aren't getting arrested for using them and stuff like that.
0: Do you think the drug war will be over anytime soon? (laughs) Probably
2: never. Uh, you know, I'm a bit of a pessimist. I don't think it's going to be over anytime soon. I think this is a, clearly a multi-generational struggle, like the civil rights struggle or the anti-war struggle or or other things like that. Powers that be are, are very entrenched. You know, there's two almost two and a half million people in prison in this country, a million and a half drug arrests made every year. Um, And changing public policy like that, that's so deeply entrenched, is just very, very slow and painstaking. There's a lot of vested interests uh, that are trying to hold on to the status quo. Um, But on the other hand, I mean, I have been very surprised the past five or ten years... Uh, so as someone working on this issue, how quickly things have changed. I mean, we were not prepared 10 years ago. We were not expecting that marijuana legalization would have happened this fast. Um, public opinion just took off a lot faster than we would have expected. And same thing around criminal justice reform more generally. Uh, 10 years ago, we would you know, not have expected that it would have become such a mainstream political issue uh, with so much bipartisan support. Um, so, you know, the, the, uh, foundation for change is there, you know, now that we have the public support, um, and, you know, politicians rhetoric has got a lot better. Um, now it's kind of, so we've, 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 won that half of the battle in some ways, in terms of winning hearts and minds, but now actually changing the, the public policy <laughs> um, is a lot harder in some ways. I mean, you, you look at this, it's like this with so many issues, whether we're talking about climate change or so many things where the science and the public is in one place um, and the policies are completely in a different place. Um, and so it's, it's a very painstaking process uh dragging through there it's not gonna like happen all at once the drug war is so entrenched at the local and state level i mean i was saying earlier i mean the good thing about drug policy being mostly made at the local and state level is that there's a lot of opportunities at the local and state level but the bad thing about that too is that it's also it means pulling it all apart is so hard it's so deeply deeply entrenched in every you know, town, county, <laughs> state, you know, for uh, law, every law enforcement agency. Um, and that's going to take decades to gradually undo it. You know, you look at in the 1960s when they passed the Civil Rights Act, it felt like, okay, we've won to a lot of people. And you know what, in a lot of ways, like the battle was just beginning at that point. Um, so with these kind of really big social justice issues um they don't seem to ever totally end there it's more like a a marathon race i think you know where you know our generation just has to run as hard and fast as we can and then hand the baton off to the the next generation
0: so kind of narrowing in on psychedelics what do you see as the future for psychedelics both for research and treatment options uh, it sounds like we're really far away from recreational use being in the picture, but maybe what do you see as a as a future for for it being more accepted in terms of research and treatment options?
2: Um, I mean, I think there is a lot of potential. Um, you know, I mean, I think the the potential. I, I, I think it, it, it is plausible that it will be approved as a medicine. I think the battle again will be not necessarily whether policies change around it, but how it happens and whether it's done and in, in an explicitly anti-racist way. You know, the, the history of drugs in our country has always been stratified among, along racial and class lines. Um, and, and it's really important for, you know, as we improve the laws around psychedelics to be cognizant of that and to do it in an explicitly anti-racist way in a way that takes social justice into consideration. Um, so that people aren't left out of the potential reforms. Um, Marijuana legalization is a really good example. Um, We were really happy. Uh, We were the main organization that worked in California last year to draft and fund and pass Proposition 64, the marijuana legalization law. And we had to really fight to get provisions in the law to protect small farmers and protect small businesses Um, and protect workers, and to put we, there's uh, provisions in Proposition 64 that are essentially like drug war reparations, where the tax revenue from uh, legalization uh, gets reinvested in communities that were worst harmed by the drug war, and there's provisions in Prop 64 to allow people who have Previously gone to prison and been arrested for marijuana to have uh, that wiped off their record and for them to be able to work in the legal industry. So I think that's kind of a good model to keep in mind as we work on psychedelics to make sure that people aren't left out of of potential reforms. And yeah, I you know uh, for anyone who's Uh, Listened all the way to the end. Thank you. And yeah, Chad, we have a website, you know, drugpolicy.org, and that has uh, a lot of really good information that kind of spells out everything. We have social media properties, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Oh, one thing I should add is that we have a big conference that we put on every two years called the International Drug Policy Reform Conference. It's going to be in Atlanta this October. Uh, and I actually curate a one of the tracks at the conference on psychedelics. So we have a whole series of panels on psychedelics where we probe very sort of interesting uh, questions. And MAPS is one of the sponsors of the conference. They'll be there and a lot of other sort of leading psychedelic researchers. Um, so I highly, highly recommend the conference. Um, but I think, you know, overall things are... are you know, heading in the right direction, but it's not like it's not going to happen all at once. Our uh, founder used to use the metaphor of, you know, it's sort of like turning around an ocean liner. You know, it's like you can kind of start to steer the thing in a better direction, you know, but it, it just takes a really long time.
1: Okay, so that cruise ship analogy, you've actually heard it on Mark Marin's WTF with Obama said that about running a country and changing policy as a general rule. So,
0: yeah, changing any kind of policy, especially when it comes to drugs, does just seem like an uphill battle. I mean, it yeah. really,
1: and you know, well, you're fighting against a lot of currents. You're fighting against big pharma who can't really control. It's not a manufactured thing. So a lot of these are plant-based. And you're fighting against the psychological warfare that the war on drugs did for us and like, Right, that there's still a
0: huge mythology surrounding drugs and the kind of people who do drugs.
1: Yeah, and there is a lot of racism around it. Um, Nixon did a real business trying to associate... Marijuana and LSD with hippies and um, heroin. He specifically decided to attach to the black community. And it was such an intentional disinformation campaign. And it was really harmful to a lot of people, I feel.
0: Yeah, incredibly harmful. And I, I mean, it was harmful not only to the people who became persecuted for drug use, but also to people who then couldn't use drugs like psychedelics to help them get better
1: yeah there are so many uses for psychedelics i mean please people visit maps what they're doing is amazing and you can look up the places that um he spoke about it's not illegal in mexico to do ibogaine there are great uh organizations doing a lot of work for both addiction and for ptsd
0: yeah in fact there are a couple of places down in baja which is not far from us in la and there's also uh, i think another couple places in costa rica canada supposedly has some places so there there are facilities who are doing this work that you can find out more information about
1: i think it's really important that we look at these are available treatments outside of the US for certain certain drugs, just like any other treatment, it's not right for everyone, it's just not. I mean, there are antidepressants on the market right now that say that they will increase suicidal thoughts. So it's not like any of these drugs is 100% safe. The important thing is if we can put it legalized medically, then you can have supervision, you can have quality control, you can have make sure that Uh, People are actually having medical assistance if needed, if they're not the right fit. I know that there is right now in Washington, it passed, but in California, a bill that is up for supervised heroin, I believe it would be. So hoping to cut down on ODing and on bad heroin and and making sure that there are medical professionals there to help then people can get off of it. It's not like, hey, this is just a... Maybe opium lounge where y'all get high. This is, they, we could have medical professionals on hand to really make sure that people get better.
0: Yeah. I mean, even if all drugs aren't good for everyone, they will be good for some people. And we should have the opportunity to try different treatments. Yeah. I mean, we should have them available to us.
1: We have two huge stigmas in the US one for mental illness and one for addiction. And we can potentially treat both of these things with the help of hallucinogens and maybe take away a lot of the shame and the darkness around it. How
0: did you like the idea that that uh, Jag was talking about about having a coming out for people who use drugs? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I think that would be really interesting to show all the different people who have tried things, who use regularly, who maybe do it once in a while recreationally.
1: I think it would be really beneficial. I think it would be wonderful. And there are people that no one even expects to be using. I mean, he talked about a professor, you know? A, yeah, a tenured, Columbia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that the Silicon Valley with microdosing, this is just out there in the world that people are self doing it. It wouldn't it be great if we could celebrate that not everyone is an addict. Addiction happens and you are, you know, there's something very serious, but there are also ways to to look at these drugs in beneficial ways for well, if you look at
0: marijuana, also the the especially in California, there's been this decrease, you know, I mean, weed in California has always been, at least since you know, I've been alive. It's always been this sort of drug that everyone kind of has used under, you know, like, you know, a lot of people use it. It's not it doesn't have the same stigma that it might have in other parts of the country. And it Mm -hmm. hasn't had that stigma in a long time. But I think what's been interesting over the last 10 years, my parents and their friends have been using it in medical ways to help them sleep, Mm -hmm. to help with back pain, to help with different kinds of things, which, you know, in the old days, if they used it at all, they would be very on the down low about it. But now, like I, I hear you know, <laughs> my parents' friends talking among themselves about what they're using to to help them with. And are they some using issues. topical
1: versions? Because I know they're
0: using some yeah. topical versions. They're taking little. Um, little tabs that help them sleep, mm-hmm. um, instead of taking sleeping pills that, mm-hmm. you know, you can get addicted to, and that cause all kinds of other
1: side effects. Yeah, I mean, Adrian they're talked about that, ambient addiction. And, yeah,
0: exactly. They're yeah. finding that, um, you know, using marijuana doesn't have those same kinds of side effects.
1: You know, there's been a shift in perception for the medicinal use quite a bit. And there are things like Charlotte's Web, which is CBD oil without THC, which is which is used specifically for children who have digestive issues. And when you're up against like antibiotics and antibiotics that start breaking down your own system's ability to digest and these, you know, I have someone very close to me, a a child that's been going through that. And it's devastating to see what allopathic medicine did to his digestive system versus what CBD oil can do it takes the pain away unfortunately it's hard to find without THC and and experts say that the THC actually helps boost the CBD's effectiveness but if you're a child you don't necessarily want them to your child to be high while they're you know exactly well I have run into
0: a few people um, here in L.A. who have been making uh, oils and other things with just CBD, and they talk about you know, daily use of them being really good for things, you know, like an antioxidant to mm-hmm. help with um, keeping cancer away or helping with digestive issues, like you said, or just uh, a lot of other things, clearer mind, healthier skin, all kinds of things.
1: Yeah, we're so open so, to putting in chemical after chemical yeah, into our bodies and things that are we know are affecting our ability to get better or yeah are in this phrase is horrible but it is true big pharma has got a clink on how much money they take from us it's really crazy we look at what medicines we create in the u.s and are shipped overseas and are sold for less there than they are here and you're just like what the hell is going on yeah
0: we're sort of held hostage by them really uh you know the the whole idea that something that is natural can't be sold and so that's the reason that it won't be used that's such a disservice to all of us it is and it's, i know
1: we were talking about even psilocybin which is natural and yeah mushrooms know, right that mushrooms, kind of mushrooms yeah. yeah so for those of you who haven't taken them psilocybin is is the active ingredient in mushrooms and it's in its third blind trial, I think, for treating depression in terminally ill cancer patients. And they've also found out that it can help regrow brain cells. They've done studies in mice and I'll put a link to this article on Snopes that has several different studies on psilocybin and the effects it can have, the positive effects it can have for people that have depression or um, anxiety and how it can regrow your brain and those things that early traumas have messed up or even later traumas have messed up in your ability to function in the world. It can help create new pathways so your brain is talking your left brain and right brain are talking to each other better maybe or i don't know it's fascinating to me and it is getting pretty far i'm worried in the the political climate we're in right now but it's gotten pretty far
0: one thing that, I, that. I thought was interesting that jag talked about was we kind of talked about this a little more off out you know outside the interview but he did talk about how this current administration yes does will impede forward movement at a federal level, but we were already moving so far ahead at local and state levels that that's just going to continue to happen. Ah. And so um, Mm -hmm. I asked him about, you know, will federal laws trump state laws or local laws? And he said that there has been so much forward movement, especially with marijuana, that for the feds to come in and break up everyone who has pot and who has you know who has a dispensary it just they just don't have the yeah they just don't have the resources to be able to do that plus the other thing that is so fascinating not only with um with marijuana but with psychedelics as he said like the public exception uh to Psychedelics being decriminalized at least, which was way over 50%. That's great. Then, you know, legalization was a different story, but, you know, it might take longer to get there. Exactly. Big cruise
1: ship. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Do you think that? I wonder if that's why, because he talks about uh, bipartisanship on a lot of these things, perhaps because the public, we as citizens, are now shifting our perception that may be influencing the fact that this is now crossing the aisles. and that Well, do exactly. Have, yeah.
0: Most people don't care about pot being legal anymore. Another thing that he brought up that I didn't keep in the interview was talking about Portugal's laws about drugs. Hmm. And um, actually, there's a segment on this in, um, in Michael Moore's documentary, Where Should We Invade Next? He goes to Portugal and looks into this also. So in Portugal, drug use is not criminalized Mm -hmm. so which is what the dpa is working for here in the u.s Mm -hmm. is to get drugs decriminalized and what that means for portugal is that users and people who sell small amounts and people who have small amounts are not arrested they're they're not considered criminals yeah and so the drug um drug use has gone down Mm-hmm. and crimes have gone down.
1: Yeah, same thing in Holland. Huge um, thing. And I, I haven't seen that documentary yet, which I've been meaning to for since it came out. Um, but I know in Holland, a lot of that with the marijuana, at the same time that Nixon was waging his war on drugs, the Dutch were doing an experiment like that, or a committee too, and researching into it. And they decided, as we all know, to legalize it. And they found that... Um, the same lower criminalization and lower usage or addiction or issues with it. I don't know how right. to yeah. precisely say it. I think we could put a yeah. Link and on in it. in
0: Portugal they have um, treatment facilities. So anyone, you know, instead of an addict going to jail for possessing
1: drugs and doing drugs, they get into a treatment facility. Which is what people have been asking, especially for their opioid addictions that we have here, which is rampant, and yet opioids are still legal like that's medicinally that's what you can have you it can just be given to you anytime i mean i i after my back injury I was given 24 um oxycodone a day for a while and wow it's just like wow that's a lot yeah because your pain is so high um but yeah, they I don't was... really have a weaning off they just trust you to do it yourself I grew up in an addictive family or you know saw alcoholism so I didn't want to go down that route so I did it but there wasn't really a weaning off process for no and they
0: barely even tell you that you can get addicted I mean I was prescribed Vicodin after uh, foot surgery and um, I didn't end up taking it very much because it made my stomach upset I hated I hate Vicodin (laughs) and um, I do not (laughs) it did nothing for me you know valium muscle relaxants
1: i like but <laughs> <laughs> i know a lot of people get itchy with vicodin
0: Uh, i don't know it was the worst it was the absolute worst so i just took um ibuprofen to get over my stupid pain but um but nobody ever told me be careful you could get addicted to this i i think i got i don't remember but it was like a ton of refills to help me with the
1: pain it w- it was a crazy amount that I was given yeah they give you a lot I mean you know look oh, Rush Limbaugh got addicted to back pain back meds and he was an opiate addict for a while and I, this it seems just, this so why easy I think to happen coming out would be great it's like it it's not like, well i he think was also right wing hero and, he, and yet he gives a well we're sorry for him and he gets a wave you know because he's oh, old old white dude sorry that's really negative
0: that's <laughs> all right he's gotten a free pass on everything for far <laughs> yeah. too long but um
1: <laughs> he certainly has
0: anyway he, uh i think that um there's this stigma with illegal drugs and then there's not the same kind of stigma attached to prescription drugs so like my grandmother was definitely addicted to sleeping pills Mm -hmm. but she was very anti-marijuana because of what she heard from nixon and heard you know all All those
1: videos that were actually falsified i don't know if you guys know that but a lot of the videos that he sent out were falsified all those pamphlets Mm -hmm. i remember
0: getting those pamphlets in like junior high and high school and my friends and i being like this sounds like such bullshit
1: Oh, I totally bought it hook, line, and zinger (laughs) because I came from a very conservative family and they're like, yeah, this is horrible. And I was like, what? And then I became an art student and things changed. Uh I grew up in California. My parents were already
0: smoking weed when they thought I didn't know. Uh, And so, um, I don't know. I was always critical of that kind of stuff. It always seemed crazy to me because also once we started experimenting with it, and I did start experimenting young in in, uh, late junior high, early high school, smoking pot. It just all of the stuff that we'd been taught to believe about drugs was not our experience at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, when i like I said, everything changed when I went to college and became an art major. And the first time with mushrooms, I swear to God, it saved my life because I have PTSD. And there was a shift in my brain that first time. And I'm not saying everybody should do it. And again, this is all water in the bridge. But it shifted something in my perception in the world that made me look at things more optimistically. And it didn't stick all the time. <laughs> you know, like, it, those are serious PTSD is a serious thing that comes back. But that was a shift that took away a lot of the suicidal ideation out of my head. Like it just it put it on the back burner for a while, even if it would hiccup back up, and I, I still could ret- return to that. And it's that's it, great. Yeah. I
0: mean, you have obvious proof that it can help.
1: Yeah, I do. I'm still around a lot a lot of years later. Uh same thing with the prescription and the illegal that you were talking about. A, when I spoke with Adrian, he spoke about that with alcoholism versus addicts. So AA rooms are much more acceptable in our culture than NA rooms, you know, because most people as he put it in an in an NA room are criminals and we judge them right off the bat and it's it's despicable. <laughs>
0: Well, hopefully in the same way that marijuana has progressed to this point of being legal in many states now, maybe psychedelics will get to that point as well. And we're kind of just at the beginning of that.
1: And we will be talking about the future uses of psychedelics and the way that they can be going soon. Uh, We've got a great guy on deck who will talk about what what potentials are there for the human experience with psychedelics.
0: Oh, I can't wait for that.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And we hope you're enjoying this series on psychedelics as much as we're enjoying putting it together. Um, thank you again so much for listening, for writing to us and telling us what you want to hear about, um, and for reviewing us on iTunes. That really helps us a lot.
1: It really does. Thank you, everyone. And be sure to check out the website if you're not already. It's rufsmpodcast.com. All of the links to our sources, further information, fun videos, they're there.
0: Yeah, Rachel takes a lot of time putting all that together for you. I am terrible at doing it, but Rachel posts a bunch of cool stuff and has a lot of links to great articles and videos and other sources. And also the website looks great. So thanks for doing that, Rachel.
1: (laughs) Hey, I take some time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.
1: Bye.